0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my
1: colleagues. Yulia Zorza with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and
2: Haj, also with AEI.
1: On
0: our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, what we call the Eastern Front, and about why these issues matter to the United States. Today is just going to be the three of us sort of catching up on the events, not only the last several weeks, but the last several months. And if you enjoy our conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and welcome. My dear friends, I propose the sort of following structure for our conversation today. And to begin with sort of a potted analysis of how the Russians have changed their approach to the war. They continue to defend doggedly and with some success, the territory that they've acquired in Ukraine from 2014 until now while continuing strikes on civilian targets, but not just apartment buildings. They've, uh, in particular, started to go after the grain industry, if you will, in Ukraine, not only attacking port facilities where grain is stored prior to shipment out of the country, but also ports along the Danube on the border with Romania, which is a pretty dicey move, you would have to say. So I propose that we begin by analyzing the Black Sea flank, if we can call it that, and then work backwards to a general discussion about where we are in the war and what might be coming down the pike. How's that sound? That
1: sounds very good.
0: Okay, so who wants to lead us off? Dalibor, you want to take the first swing?
2: Sounds great. So so I just want to pick up on perhaps one element of of what you mentioned, Giselle, which is this new approach uh, undertaken by Russia, which consists of, of focusing on the destruction of Ukrainian grain export infrastructure, because that's what a big part of the news over the past couple of weeks has been about. There is a deliberate effort to not only to follow up on the withdrawal from the from the grains deal, but, but to proactively make it impossible for Ukrainians to get their grain exports out to their normal destinations. It's an odd strategy in the following sense, which is that, to some extent, Putin, since the beginning of the war, has relied on, on the non-aligned nations not going along with the Western alliance in holding Russia accountable. And now he is effectively holding them hostage in a way and and, and using this, this sort of extortionary weapon with, you know, who knows what goal in mind. But I wonder if it's going to work. I mean, you look at the pictures from the recent uh, Russia-Africa summit with fewer than 20 African leaders and heads of government attending compared to 43 out of the 54 heads of government uh, attending in 2019 at the most recent iteration of the summit. And I think it takes, you know, people in the West always criticize sort of post-colonial orientalizing mindset, with regard to the third world and or developing countries, and uh, what we are seeing coming from Moscow is like you know how do you call that other than that a sort of post-colonial approach? Like you sort of you know in a very sort of public and visible way, you disrupt the supply of important commodity for these countries, and then you offer a handout when Russia sort of offered some sort of modest sort of supply of grains for free to these to these countries. That I think you know, these leaders would be would be foolish to fall for it. And I think that sort of amount, that sort of reservoir of either goodwill or trust or whatnot towards Russia must be wearing thin in some quarters. Obviously there are other things going on in Africa. The again Russian sponsored coup in Niger and and that whole sort of belt of Russian influence in the sort of north of the of the sort of sub Saharan Africa. But but I think this is might be one of the sort of theatres to watch out in the coming months to sort of see whether Russian power and influence starts to crumble or or whether it becomes more entrenched. And I don't think I would bet on the latter, to be honest.
0: Let me ask you, is it possible to fit these actions, which in some sense just sort of look like the only thing they could come up with, because at best, the Ukraine war is at a downmate. Russia's opportunities for further conquest have basically vanished. And the question is, do they have enough people and equipment to retain their toeholds that they have, and in particular, the Crimea? So it seems like they're just trying to wreck as much of Ukraine as they possibly can. But also, as you rightly suggest, this is, you know, what goes on in Ukraine and what goes on with Ukrainian grain doesn't stay there. Do they imagine that they will be the substitute grain provider to the Middle East and sub-Saharan Africa? I just don't see where this leads, I have to say.
2: I think that's part, and I'm not sure anybody does. I mean, it's, you know, throwing the kitchen sink at the problem with the expectation that enough chaos will be created that will somehow be to the Kremlin's benefit in, in the end. Whether it has to do with, you know, opening up markets for Russian grain exports themselves or whether it is... About just instigating chaos in Sub-Saharan Africa and a sort of food insecurity situation that will drive up more people across the Mediterranean to Europe, in a way that would be disruptive to European politics and make it harder for you know leaders like Maloney to to keep her focus on on the war. So I don't believe that there is a sort of you know five-dimensional chess strategy behind this. I think it's one of those instances which we've seen in the past where. Putin just tries different things, pulls different threads and and sees what works.
1: And I think it's also a matter of how long term or short term Putin, Mm -hmm. Russia generally can think right now. Because what people maybe focus less on with this grain is that there's kind of several qualities of grain, the EU level. And I I think Donnebo will talk about that in a second. Then there's Ukraine. But before we get to that, on, on Russia, the Ukraine grain is much higher quality than the Russia grain. And Russia has not produced as much this year as in previous years. But what they are, to me, trying to do by what you're referring to earlier, Giselle, bombing grain infrastructure, is to Increase the price so that they can cash in now, short term to medium term, as much as possible for their bad quality grain, with which, of course, they will finance the war machine. And so the Africans are not thrilled about that grain being expensive. And a lot of the Ukrainian grain was going to China, and now China has to buy more expensive, and it is lower quality overall on the market. Everybody's unhappy. It's like a lose lose. Boosting. But for Russia, for now, it fixes the problem of them cashing in, in, in this process, destroying as much of Ukraine and having third countries suffer as much as possible with, for them, that being actually a plus rather than a minus, a benefit rather than a cost short term, Right.
0: Well, the China aspect is kind of an interesting one, especially considering that as things have played out, it has accelerated the trend of Moscow being the second banana to Beijing, with the Chinese taking steps to keep their dependency. You know, the the Russians are selling them cheap oil and gas and stuff, but the Chinese have sort of prevaricated on building more pipelines and so on. And so the Chinese want a variety of, they care a lot about natural resources of all sorts, but they're also very wary of becoming too dependent on individual suppliers. So if you're really Machiavellian, you can think maybe that the Russians are trying to build back some leverage in their relationship with Beijing. Maybe I'm like way overthinking it. I think you're both probably right that Putin is just trying whatever comes to hand.
2: I think this is one of those areas where I think there is a real divergence of interests between Beijing and Moscow, in the sense that the Chinese, you know, if they're gearing up for a possible confrontation with with the United States, if they are thinking about you know the US decoupling and and, and so on and so forth, they, they have a vested interest in keeping their connectivity with Europe alive and and sort of healthy and vibrant as much as possible. And, and so I don't know whether I have it on this podcast or, or...
0: But that's going south too. The Italians are pulling out of the Belt and Road Initiative, which, I mean, I don't follow Italian yeah. politics.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, so it's not going well for the time. That's, that's, that's for sure. But what, one sort of snippet of, like, which might be a sort of factor if that's true, but I would encourage everybody to fact check it, because it can also be misinformation, but but there was a little sort of rumor that was floated, maybe on this podcast, maybe elsewhere on on the internet, namely that the Chinese tried to dissuade Russia from bombing Ukrainian railway infrastructure to the extent to which the Russians would, you know, be keen to do. And I mean, it, you know, it does make a certain amount of sense given, you know, the the very impressive state in which Ukrainian railways find themselves. You know, they might play a role in, in sort of broader Chinese scheme of of things in which, you know, we want to keep that, that sort of transit corridor alive and and safe. So 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 that's just a side note. Uh you, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, this is not from this podcast because it's the first time I hear it, but it does make sense to me. The question rather I think is of nuance how much they're trying to dissuade and how much we are interpreting in them in the media um or, or building too much into it. But China has very little interest in great infrastructure being destroyed partially because a lot of it is going again to China and railways includes that part of transportation and part because China has invested serious money in this. They're not just have been dependent on and very much investing into balancing out the imports of food really um, into China but Ukraine has been a key part of that because of course the fertile soil of the region and China does own 10% of Ukraine's agricultural surface, 9 10%, something like that. That's a lot of surface and a lot of money. So they're probably trying to dissuade things like that. But the question is how much Russia is listening and how much they're really, you know, weighing in and saying, well, we won't give you this or that if you continue to do that. Or they're just, you know, strongly condemning what Russia is doing.
0: You know, I have to say that, especially the longer the conflict continues, the notion that this is just a border dispute confined to a backward corner of the world is just harder and harder to sustain. The implications for feeding the world, for supplying the world, you know, for the international economy more broadly, let alone the balance of power, both in Europe and sort of you know, globally, actually, it is really quite striking. And also quite striking is how slowly the global import of the war is dawning on the political
2: conversation, at least in the United States, but maybe also in Europe, too. Well, so that that's, I think, the the other sort of side of this, which we haven't really delved into. So, you know, there is a sort of pressure on Western leaders possibly coming from a you know, food insecurity crisis in Africa and resulting, you know, migratory flows towards Europe. But there is already a sort of crisis underway in the Ukrainian-Polish, Ukrainian-Slovak, Ukrainian-Romanian relations that's linked directly to this grain problem. So, So Ukraine, you know, is a huge agriculture producer, the largest exporter in the world of sunflower oil, the fourth largest exporter in the world of corn, seven largest exporter of wheat, and there has been effort made following the attacks on Odessa to get Ukrainian grain out of the country by a rail through neighboring countries. And the problem with that is that land transport is really expensive. I mean, people don't do that in normal times, and and so it doesn't really pay to take you know grains long distances on on the railway or on on, on trucks. And so what what happened? Uh, was that much of this grain, which was nominally destined to be sold elsewhere, ended up countries like Poland or or, or, or Slovakia prompting a backlash from local farmers? Now you know you can say in, in the end you know grain is fungible, right? So so like you know these countries already are facing food inflation because of you know the disruptions to these to these chains, but but I mean these you know local interest groups are very well organized and. And if they see surplus grain coming from, from Ukraine, they they immediately sort of snap at these, the, the opportunity to stop it. And initially, uh, the countries neighboring Ukraine implemented unilaterally without asking Brussels for permission bans on imports, which were then kind of exposed, facto legalized by Brussels, by, by European Union. I mean, in normal times, it would be unthinkable that, that you know countries are not supposed to have their independent sort of trade policies. In the european union but it was just impossible to sort of resist that kind of pressure
0: well tell that to french farmers this is the kind of chaotic situation that's particularly difficult for the eu
2: to handle right that's right so so basically the, the commission in the end just went along with with whatever those those affected countries decided there is a ban on the Imports in place until the 15th of September and only transit of grains is permitted, which means that unless there is like an itinerary for, you know, a specific shipping container to go all the way somewhere else it is not allowed on the territory of, say, Poland or Slovakia. In, in, in the past, there were instances where like, some sort of like illegal machinations were made once the, the grain was inside the country, but they are fighting really hard to stop that, so there's very little that gets in as of now, and that obviously places a burden on, on the Ukrainian agricultural sector, and, and the whole crisis escalated to the point when one of the advisors to the Polish president repeated this line or that originated with, with Ben Wallace and, and, and then Jake Sullivan about how Ukrainians should be more grateful for all they're getting. And that was a sort of, for me, a sort of unexpected low point in, in, in what otherwise has been a very strong relationship between, between Poland and Ukraine, and Ukrainians in return summoned the ambassador. I think there have been now an effort made to sort of reconcile the two two countries, but I mean, you know, that is Something that you know very much plays into the hands of Putin and and, and, and the Kremlin. Uh, maybe that was not primary intended effect, but but it's you know it's part of the play.
0: Well, it it fulfills his lone remaining strategy is is for dissolution among the West. And he's you know again he's you have to say that the pause, if you will, between the uh, Ukrainian successes of last year and where we are now have been a time that's really gone begging or gone to waste, and we are now beginning to reap the consequences of that, I think. I mean, not only in the political wrangling, but we want to shift to a discussion of the war itself.
2: Maybe before all that, I'll just make one sort of little, little side note, which I might have made on this podcast before, which is, which is that it is somewhat dispiriting to see this backlash against Ukrainian grain imports happening in countries that are otherwise the closest friends and allies that, that Ukraine has inside of the European Union. Because the plan right now is for Ukraine at some point to join the EU. At that point, it can be expected that Ukraine will have a large and very competitive agricultural sector that will produce lots of cheap grain. Right, I mean, it's 11% of Ukraine's GDP agriculture relative compared to 2% EU average. Fourteen uh, percent of Ukrainians work in agriculture. or Work before the war, and so, so once Ukraine is inside the EU, I mean Ukrainian grain will be very much part of the single market. And it's a sort of repetition of the same debate that the EU had before the Polish accession to the to the EU. And as a result of that process, the I mean, reforms done to the common agricultural policy. I you know I think common agricultural policy, even in its reformed form is certainly unsustainable with with a country like Ukraine inside inside the EU and, and and so I think you know that's a sort of difficult conversation to be had given the politics of it but it, it's an inevitable one and I would have almost hoped for a sort of more constructive approach from from the sort of political leaderships of these countries sort of feed you know, to put it in as in a, this broader context and, and and say that yeah i mean we'll have been you know, keep grains competing against our grain.
0: Yulia Hindalobor explained this to me. I mean, just thinking of the example of Poland, which has tried to style itself as the bedrock or keystone of the Eastern Front, spending a ton of money on expanding and modernizing its military, etc., etc., has been stalwart in taking in Ukrainian refugees and being the conduit for the resupply of the Ukrainian army and. You know, again, I just, to me, that's, that's the most obvious example, but I, this might be a good time to walk up and down the Eastern Front to see which way the trend lines are going. I mean, the Romanians were sort of watching the fireworks display across the Danube as the Russians rocketed the ports, and you were there recently, to whom you spoke, what were they saying?
1: Well, so I was not there there near the border where these things happen, but it still felt pretty close in that there was a second round of these bombings and people are across the Danube River from on the Ukrainian side in the Danube Delta. And people that live in that region are pretty freaked out. And I think it's about, well, I know it is about the war feeling literally, that it is getting closer. And frankly, from kind of a grand perspective, not listening to, you know, what is happening in in this corner or the other, it does look like, and I think you were alluding to that at the beginning, too, it does look like Russia is seriously escalating. And it's escalating not just against Ukraine, but against the powers that it perceives it is fighting an indirect war with, which is NATO. Because on the one side, I think Russia bombing Ukrainian grain facilities is to increase the price for short and medium term calculations. But the other thing is to provoke, to escalate, to see how NATO is reacting. So two rounds of bombing in the Danube Delta and second time around the other day, just the uh, village that is across the ports on the other side of the river, the Romanian village window shattered, and someone could have died or gotten injured. And people in that region don't feel safe anymore. And they're really frustrated with the Romanian government, who has been saying in both cases of these bombings, no, NATO territory is safe, and has not decided to invoke article four for consultations with nato it keeps saying you know we're safe under nato the first round of bombings something was invoked but it was invoked by zelensky not by romania and romania played its card off we're going to stay discreet and didn't issue any complaints not even in the press statement from that first nato ukraine council Bulgaria was actually louder, arguing in the first round, we'll see what happens if there is a second round, was arguing that the war zone that I think we mentioned in the previous episode with Admiral Fogo, the war zone that Russia is now officially operating in is biting into the exclusive economic zone of Bulgaria. So big time into the Romanian one, which means also that gas drilling is getting well more expensive there's another cost to nato territory directly or indirectly grain has gotten more expensive insurance is up by 35% so all these direct and indirect now with the window shattering costs that NATO territory and NATO, so to speak, citizens are bearing have no reflection whatsoever in how the Romanian government has responded the second time around to the statements from the president and the prime minister are about serious concern and serious condemnation. But I want to add one more thing to this. So on the one side, Russia is clearly escalating and the target's you know they could have chosen not to bomb there 200 meters from nato border the target is the entity that with which they're fighting but the escalation is happening because of nato leaders and in this case particularly the romania too but particularly the biden administration's response i think there was a statement following the first round of bombing from maybe a mistaken, maybe it's the White House spokesperson saying, we don't want to bring ships into the Black Sea, but rather we want to bring grain out of the Black Sea. That's like a false dichotomy altogether. But apart from, you know, kind of manipulative of a statement, it also is based on the logic of If we only don't get into Russia's way, they will not be escalating. And Admiral Fogel, on the last episode, mentioned how the NATO maritime presence that was in the Black Sea was withdrawn to not create a conflict, to not escalate months before the full-scale invasion. And now we have nothing. And it's counterfactual, but nevertheless, I've been arguing for a while before the full-scale invasion, for a Danube presence of NATO, a maritime or semi-maritime presence, because Turkey is blocking any other presence. If that would have been there, this wouldn't have happened, right? Because that's deterrence, and Russia wants to escalate and provoke, but not as much as affecting directly or or attacking directly NATO uh, military assets. But because we don't have anything, and with that, I'll wrap up my examples, the uh, Romanian in the first round, a Romanian ship got damaged. And over the last year and a bit, several demining equipments, which NATO should be providing, but it is not in the Black Sea region, have also been destroyed, Romanian ones, because of the Russian floating mine. So it's an escalation and an addition of costs for NATO directly. But our response is, no, we cannot bring anything in because that would mean that we can't bring anything out. It just doesn't make sense.
0: Okay, oh, You've had your Romanian black sea limit for today. I do, I do thank you for not going down the red hole of Bulgarian politics, although I think we should maybe do a show on that sometime soon because there's a lot spinning up there and it is even harder for an American to understand than, than anything else. Dalibor, now explain Poland and the rest of the EU to us.
2: Well, so, so the Polish situation I think is is to some extent Quite straightforward. So Poland's agricultural sector is smaller than Ukraine's, but it's sizable. There's an election in October. The governing Law and Justice Party relies heavily on support from rural areas, from smallholder farmers, etc., etc. So, so this is an important constituency, and and so it's not altogether surprising that they would be very sort of pliable on this. And and, and so, so the government really went out of their way to say, yeah, we support Ukraine. We've been you know helping Ukraine, but when it comes to, you know, agricultural <laughs> exports, like we have to prioritize the interests of our farmers. So, so it's not, you know, not altogether surprising, but but it is, in my view, still a failure of political leadership to some extent to fail to explain to the, the sort of the, the complexities of it and, and, and just set it into this broader framework, which involves Ukraine becoming a member of the EU in, in the future. And it also makes sure that people's minds are focused on who the real threat, what the real threat is here. And I, I do fear that this Russian approach of just like throwing the kitchen sink at the problem and creating all kinds of different sources of chaos, rising insurance rates, rising food prices, migratory crisis, etc., that that it will sort of without reliable political leadership that can sort of connect the dots. and and, and present an accurate picture to the voting public that that you'll have an electorate in any country that will be increasingly kind of tired and demoralized and will want this war to just go away, regardless of of how that happens. And Slovakia, which is where I'm recording from right now, has has gone down that path much further than some of the other countries. So, So I can share some you know poll numbers with you from May from a Globsec survey that asked people across Central and Eastern Europe about their opinion on who is to blame for the war and in Slovakia you have 34% of the public that's blaming the war on the West and 17% of the public that's blaming it on Ukraine itself so basically a majority of people who blame either Ukraine or, or the West, only 40% of Slovaks who blame it on Russia in comparison you know, 85 percent of polls blame this situation on Russia, and correctly so. And 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 so, so Slovakia is another country that's going to have an election this fall. We don't know. We you know what what sort of coalition will emerge out of that. But there is strong pro-Russian undercurrent, and that is constraining the the choices of of of, of different party leaders. And it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because, again, without that political sort of leadership making an active case for why, you know, we need Ukraine to win. I mean, the public opinion just drifts in, in ways that then make it harder to make that case later on.
0: Let me propose a uh, slight change to the remaining agenda. First of all, our next program will be a war-related program, our scheduled for next Friday includes that. Therefore, I'm going to suggest that for the last few minutes here, we remain at this macro 30,000 geostrategic level. And let me frame a proposition for the three of us to discuss. And just to put it in the broadest terms, that there's been a fundamental misunderstanding of what this war is about. Is it about, A, preserving the status quo in Europe, or B, creating something new in Europe, a new balance of power, a new order that may renew the liberal principles upon which the European and transatlantic projects have long been founded. But again, is not just the restoration of the status quo, but the creation of new structures and a new order to achieve the traditional ends. I'll just go first and Uh, Well, okay, I think it's much – I've said this occasionally before, but the longer this goes on, the more I believe it is. It's much more about creating something new. Again, not new in terms of its fundamental political principles or the ideas that give political institutions their coherence, but it's about what was, A, incomplete before. Europe, whole and free, as the man once said – But dealing with the, and and we've suggested a number of ways in which even a successful outcome of this war would make for pretty substantial changes in the various European political and economic architectures that previously existed. I also think it's a big challenge for American strategy as well that requires a new, I mean, in this regard, the Biden administration has not fulfilled the role that sort of the times are demanding of it to help Europe get to that different future. So without going into every little jot and tittle as to why that's my attitude toward things, I'd be interested in hearing from the two of you as to how you see this.
1: Lalipur, if I may, I'll go next and I'll let you go last because I have the suspicion that you'll come up with something far better. I think it's also a matter of you've arrived before me on the closer to the Eastern Front. And so I am a little bit marked by talking to people here and I guess their pessimism or their skepticism and sometimes, unfortunately, cynicism when it comes to what the future will look like based on obvious reasons the fact that we don't really have in Central and Eastern Europe much of an incident or a relative historical example of things working out the way people would want them to, right? That makes a difference in quality and in how people. In Ukraine, in Romania, in Poland, in Slovakia, look at the region. And I think I'm colored by that being here for a while and talking to people and asking them about their opinion, including about this thing, the new order or same order. And so with that in mind... Two very small things uh, or or small additions to this. The one thing is exactly what I was mentioning, and that is I feel that people off the Eastern Front oftentimes have uh, difficulty imagining either a complete Reorientation or transformation, or just a preserving of status quo, either way, when looking at this war, because it seems so destructive and so different from what people would have expected in its outreach and, and how big of a war it is, that colors the perspective If that makes sense too. I think there's very big, and I see it's skepticism here, that there is a good outcome under the current political circumstances, including in Washington, D.C., the lack of resolution of this administration and the fact that the administration is running out of time and the fear of what could come next when it comes to the pivot of the United States away from this war... Think Trump. Both these things are coloring the the perspective of what could come after this. And now setting the a bit negative perspective here aside. To answer your question, the second point, maybe to me it's something in the middle because I think if we presume a good positive outcome of this war, which is the prerequisite of either status quo or a transformation of the transatlantic space, in terms of including institutional structures, doesn't that come with it? If Ukraine becomes the victor, the, the winner of this war, and it becomes integrated into NATO and the EU, with the mere size and experience, that will by itself shift the power balance of both institutions and in a way transform them. I know that's not very revolutionary, but to me this is then answering your question of it goes into rather into transformation but by itself through Ukraine's victory.
0: I would say that Ukraine has kicked open the door that can't really be shut easily. That would lead to the real collapse of the westernizing
2: project i think things would really have to go south in ukraine for that door to be shut in a durable way so so to answer your question giselle you know i'll probably follow julia's even-handed approach and i'll say obviously it's a bit of both right so so putin has defied the status quo by trying to redraw borders in europe in the 21st century by trying to set up fake countries and so in in a way the pushback that he's getting is an attempt to restore a sort of rules-based international system on the european continent but i think that's only a small part of the story and i think the bigger part of the story is this opportunity to build something new in europe that would be better than the, the sort of system and red lines and, and 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 borders so to speak that were drawn in the in the 1990s it's an opportunity to, you know, move Ukraine in a durable way from the post-Soviet space, and Ukrainians themselves have, you know, tried to move their country in that direction on numerous occasions, starting with the 2004 Orange Revolution, with the Revolution of Dignity, and now when, you know, when you look at Ukraine, I mean, they're very much in efforts to just turn Ukraine into a normal European country through. You know, candidate status, the EU through the association agreement, through the pressure to to join NATO, you see this massive leapfrogging in terms of domestic reforms that that the Ukrainians have been undertaking, and and I mean, this is something that gives me a lot of optimism. I'm impressed with every conversation with with like individual Ukrainians I've been I've been having, whether it's on the podcast or whether it's you know the lady who runs. A little uh, patisserie shop here in 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 Slovakia who's a Ukrainian Ukrainian refugee and uh, I think it is a stark departure from this mentality that that Julia alluded to, namely this notion which I mean I encounter a lot in you know places like the Czech Republic of Slovakia or Slovakia or Hungary, which basically the attitude that commands you to just keep your head down, right? Like it's you know the, the sort of the grand course of history like that's for the great powers. Like we in Central Europe, we you know shouldn't try to stick up too much. Let's keep our heads down, and you know the the Germans, Americans, Russians will will decide things. And and I think that's ultimately what what Orban's approach to to foreign policy boils down to. Like so, if you can sort of you know kick the smaller ones and 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 be a sort of local bully, but you don't want to alienate any of the the great powers of the world. And and in a way, the Ukraine kind of Forces these countries to to pick sides, and they've, you know, in a way picked sides already, and and, and it is for the good. And unless, you know, again, things go really south in in, in Ukraine, I am more optimistic about the prospects of of this part of the world than than I was before the war itself started.
0: All right. We always do try to end on a positive note, and maybe that's become so ingrained in us that that shaped Dalibor's response there, but I'll take it. I appreciate the two of you indulging me in my uh, inflating one trial balloon after another. Uh, I always learn a lot from you. So from me, Giselle Donnelly and... Julia Zosa and... Daliborohatch. Thanks to our listeners for indulging our rambling conversations on the Eastern Front. This podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please be in touch with us on Twitter or X, as we are now obligated to call it, using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. So thank you, and we'll see you next time.